So when you title a series of messages, Embrace the Turtle, uh, you got to have an explanation for that. And it's the thought process came from that particular fable. Now, if you know the history of that fable, or maybe you just remember this from school at some point, that it comes from Aesop's fable. And Aesop wrote long, long ago these short stories that had a moral at the end, or a point at the end. In fact, I have the entire copy of the original Hare and the Tortoise that was written by Aesop. And just to remind you, in case you didn't get it or you haven't heard it before, which is, you're deprived, but if you haven't, here's what it says. A hare once ridiculed the short feet and the slow pace of the tortoise. But the tortoise laughed and said, though you may be as swift as the wind, I'll beat you in a race. All right, said the hare, you soon live to regret those words. So they agreed that the fox would choose the course and fix the goal. And on the day appointed for the race, the tortoise started crawling at his usual steady pace without stopping a solitary moment. Of course, the hare soon left the tortoise far behind. Once he reached the midway mark, he began to nibble some juicy grass and amuse himself in different ways. And since the day was warm, he thought, why not take a little nap in a shady spot? Even if the tortoise might pass him while he slept, he was confident that he could go easily overtake him again before he reached the finish line. Meanwhile, the unwavering tortoise plodded on straight toward the goal. When Hare finally awoke, he was surprised to find that the tortoise was nowhere to be seen. He headed for the finish line as fast as he could. However, he dashed across the line only to see that tortoise had crossed it before him and was comfortably resting and waiting for his arrival. Slow and steady wins the race. A story that through the centuries has been understood in a couple of major ways. One is the way you heard at the very end. Slow and steady finishes or wins the race first. But there's also this kind of undercurrent of that overconfidence can lead to failure. Slow and steady wins the race. Here's the reason we're talking about embracing the turtle, that slow and steady pace, is because with the new year comes new opportunities, new goals, new desires, new visions, new optimism, new commitments. And yet many of us, as we, you know, we talked about, uh, if you were here last week, we talked about uh, New Year's resolutions. And I asked, how many of you make New Year's resolutions? And it was a very small percentage. The largest percentage was people who said their only resolution was not to make resolutions. But we treat resolutions or change, or maybe there's a a health event in your life, or there's a wake-up call in your life, or in a relationship, or in a career, and you say, I'm going to change some things, I'm going to do some things different, I'm going to have a new vision, I'm going to have new optimism, I'm going to have new commitments, and new goals, and we treat it almost like the hare. We sprint out of the gate going as fast as we can, and before long, we begin to, you know, settle down for a minute and take a break. And the same is true for many of us spiritually. A new year comes, we're going to read through the Bible this year. I'm going to go to church more this year. I'm going to really be involved in Sunday school this year. I'm going to talk to my kids about God more this year. We really start good in January. Man, we're really good. Some of you have read every day for the past week on your Bible reading plan. You really start off good and then something happens or... A disruption occurs and we kind of sputter. And like the hare, we lose our way. I'm told the first service this. When I was growing up, I never read through the entire Bible like in a year. or I mean, I read, uh, I think I read all of the Bible at some point by the time I was out of high school, but not all together in a consolidated way. And it happened when I was in seminary, actually. And uh, here's the reason. is because I would come home from youth camp, not New Year's, but I would come home from youth camp and I would say, I'm going to read the Bible. Like, I'm going to start now, because after youth camp, I'd go to my grandmother's, and we'd spend the summer at my grandmother's, and Granny didn't have the latest fun stuff, and so you had to come up with stuff to do. Y'all remember those days? Like, like some of you remember, like, when you had to come up with stuff to do, like, imagination and those kind of things. And so uh, I'd just say, well, I'm just going to take an hour every day, I'm just going to read, read the Bible. I'm going to start in Genesis, and I'm going to read through. And I, did, I don't know how many times I did that, but here was the problem. I'd, I mean, I would fly through Genesis. First part of Exodus. And then I hit a wall. And five weeks later, I look back and go, oh, I hadn't done that in a while. I'm kind of like six weeks behind on my reading stuff. It's kind of hard to catch up, like a book like the Bible on your reading plan. My goal as your pastor, my goal as a follower of Jesus Christ, my goal as a leader of this congregation, my heart, my prayer 
is that we would become the people that God intends for us to be. That we would experience something together and individually that is greater than we've ever experienced when it comes to the word and the lifestyle and the things that we do for the Lord. That we would encounter him in ways that we've never encountered him. That we would become something greater. But the problem I see is a lot of us are like the hare. We want to spread out and really get after something and get after it and get after it. And then it just kind of fades away. And the problem is, no matter what our goals, no matter what our intentions, no matter what our desires, no matter what our thoughts are, we are products of the choices we make. We're products of the habits that are in our lives. I read a quote this week that really just kind of hit me, and this is what it said. It says, we are not what we dream of being. We are what we do consistently. No matter what your goals or your dreams or your aspirations are, we are what we do consistently. Somebody said it a different way. It said, first we make our habits, and then our habits make us. What are your habits making in your life? What are the things that you do every day habitually? You see, spiritually, the habits we create and curate, the habits that we do and the ones that we develop, will determine the quality of our walk with Jesus. And so we're starting a series today called Embrace the Turtle. And the idea is that we are going to embrace the habits in our lives that develop that slow progress of growth into the people that God has called us to be. It's not going to be the most exciting thing. We're not going to jump up and down all the time, but it's the slow progress of becoming who God wants us to be. We're going to talk in a minute about why I think that's so necessary for our time, but I want to do it through two images. And I want to confess right up from the beginning, I, I, I steal these from a guy that I respect a whole lot, a guy named Louis Giglio, who has preached this and done this. Two pictures that I just love what he does. And the title of the message today is These Two Pictures. I don't usually don't even tell the title of the message. A lot of times I don't even have a title for the message. We just have to do one for the, uh, to put it online. But here's the thing, alright? The title of the message today is The Pinata versus the Iceberg. The Pinata versus the Iceberg. We're going to start talking about the pinata. Now, when I was growing up, now I, I realize that today children's birthday parties are like full-scale extravaganzas. Can I get an amen from the parents in the house today? Like jumpies everywhere, people doing stuff, themed out parties, like everything's got to match up, you got to go all out for this. I've been to parties, some people put on in this room, parties where there are people drawing caricatures of your kids. I mean, we had a party for Maddie this week, we had a nail artist at our party for them to do nail, not mine, but the girls. I mean, like you go out, you know, you're, I mean, they're big. But when I was growing up, that's not the way kids' birthday parties were. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Like when I was growing up in Dyersburg, Tennessee, and you were a kid, you had two choices for cool places to have a birthday party. One was a skating rink that was literally named Skating is Fun. Not a very creative name, but that was it. It used to be Thelma's, but Thelma retired, and they just named it Skating is Fun, all right? And the second was McDonald's. Now, when's the last time your kid asked you to have a McDonald's? How many of you ever had a McDonald's birthday party? There you go. I see those hands. And in Dyersburg, the McDonald's birthday parties were really cool because you would go and you would eat and all that stuff. You know, the hamburgers, nobody cared about nutritional stuff, value and all that. You just ate the hamburgers. You ate the french fries. Uh, we didn't even have chicken nuggets back then. That's It's been that long ago, all right? And then... This was the cool part. They let you tour the kitchen. Like, they would never let you do that today because, you know, the health department would shut them down. And they would take you into the freezer. And then they would always do this. Every party you went at, the excited McDonald's employee who was tasked with taking care of the kid's birthday party would then shut the freezer door and go, oh, I think I just locked it. How are we going to get these kids out of here? And you stood in the freezer with the door shut for like five minutes, and that was the thrill of the birthday party. Anybody ever been locked in the freezer at McDonald's? That was a Dyersburg thing. All right, that's all right. But if you went to a kid's birthday party in Dyersburg at somebody's house, they didn't do that very much because nobody wanted that many kids at their house. But if you went to a house and you walked in and you saw a pinata, you knew it was a good party, right? 
I mean, you knew it was going to be lit. <laughs> that he's going to get turned, right? That I do that okay? Like, all right, just part of my job as a pastor is to ruin words for kids. All right, and so you knew it was going to be a big time party, but you never did the pinata early. You did the pinata at the end. And so you had all kinds of games. You had pin the tail on the donkey or elephant or whatever was there at that particular time. And you had games that were outside, you know, throwing yard darts at each other or whatever was there for kids' parties back then. Um, and then you would you would go inside and open the presents. And then you would have cake and ice cream, get all hyped up on sugar. And then they would bring out the pinata. So you get kids hyped up on sugar, you put a blindfold on them, you spin them around until they're disoriented, and you hand them a weapon, and you say, go at it, kid, right? And so you got this beautiful, nobody, I mean, everybody loves it. It's hard not to smile when you see a pinata. It's colorful on the outside, it's pretty. And then when you started to take wax at the pinata, the goal was to bust the pinata open. What happened when you busted the pinata open? Candy. No kale or broccoli. Like candy, right? Like good old-fashioned, fattening, non-healthy candy. And as soon as it busted, no matter if you told the kids not to, hey, don't, y'all don't jump out there when the candy comes out. As soon as the candy comes, what happens? Everybody swarms, right? Now, you never wanted to be the kid that actually broke open the pinata. Because you're blindfolded and disoriented and you missed out on the candy. Like you want to be the kid before that got a good whack and then the next guy does it, right? So you get in, you get all the candy and that was the party. A colorful, hollow vessel filled with sugary goodness. Now here's the deal. The pinata is a picture of our society. We are all about the glitz and the glamour the pretty, and the next cool thing. But it is hollow on the inside. And whatever might be there is just more sugary substance that's going to wear off in a few minutes and make us want more. I read a a story this week from a guy on a blog named Seth Godin. He's a guy that does business and cultural kind of stuff. And he just talked about the superficiality of our stage. He didn't call it the pinata of our age, but here's what it is. He, he, he did it by talking about best-selling uh, books and entertainment. And so in 1961, the number one best-selling book in America was, I think we got a picture of it, right? Was this. Alan Drury's Advise and Consent. It was a 690-page political novel. Anybody here read Advise and Consent? We had somebody in the first service that had read it, all right? Mr. Jerry Garrett said he'd have to read the Cliff Notes to give us a book report, but he'd read it. 1961, the most popular, the best-selling book in America was Advise and Consent by Alan Drury, 690. When's the last time you read a 690-page book? This was the best-selling book. 600, that wasn't Harry Potter. 690-page political novel. 2016, before we put it up, anybody want to guess? Here it is. Adult coloring books were the best-selling books in America. Now, some of you love these things. I'm not getting on to you about these things, all right? No, some of you are mad at me right now. It's okay. Like, I don't, the number one best-selling books in America were adult coloring books. Now, like I said, if you like those, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. What I am saying is, do you see the level of depth and difference between a 690-page political novel and a coloring book? Around 15 years ago, there were uh, three new cable stations that came on the scene, and their purpose, as they were being announced, was to add texture to our culture, to give depth to our viewing experience. The three channels were the Learning Channel, now just known as TLC, Bravo, and History. Some of you know this already, but here are the the shows on those channels right now. Toddlers and Tierras, My Five Wives, Love at First Swipe, 90 Day Fiancé, 14 installments of The Real Housewives, including The Real Housewives of Saskatoon, 
That's not real, but it could be, all right? Some of you are like, there are not 14, there are only 8. I don't know how many there are, but there are too many, whatever they are. Palm stars and swamp people. Now, again, if you like any of those particular shows, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Well, it is. But I'm saying... Shows that were meant to... The learning channel is giving you love at first swipe. Bravo about deep entertainment. They were going to do cultural, deep, literary, musical entertainment. Have housewives yelling at each other all day. We live in a pinata culture. Showy on the outside. From one thing to the next. They, the, the newest thing in television stuff is to do short seasons... Of around 10 episodes or less. Because people can't put up with 20 episode seasons anymore. They got a new show they got to go to. They got to watch something else. We got multiple ways to find stuff. And it means that we should have opportunities to do deeper stuff. But all of it has become surface level. We live in a culture of hollow entertainment. Of hollow intellectualism. Of hollow politics. And of hollow religion. And if we're not careful, we develop into people that are pinatas. Richard Foster said this. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant gratification is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. When I read that this week, the phrase that stuck out in my mind is the doctrine of instant gratification is a primary spiritual problem. We live in an age when literally everything is at our fingertips and ready for now. But we don't have to wait on anything. If you go to a restaurant and you have to wait more than five minutes after you've ordered, you start to wonder where the meal is. I got an alert this morning on my phone that uh, Uber Eats. Do y'all know Uber Eats? It's not a... So Uber is like picking up people, driving them. Uber Eats is they deliver food to you. Uber Eats has now made a new service available for the people in this area. And I thought nothing defines our society better than this. Because you can now get Krispy Kreme donuts delivered to you by Uber. And some of you are like, that's ridiculous. Some of you are like, what's, what's the app? What's the... Uh, what is, where do I, where do I, how do I get that? I see some of you already on your phones, alright? But the point is, you want it, you're sitting at home and you're like, man, I really want one of those hot, fresh, Krispy Kreme donuts. But I just, man, I don't want to get off the couch. That'd be too much work. And so you get on your app and you Uber Eats it and, God knocks on your door with a dozen hot glazed donuts. You pay for it in your pajamas and go sit down and finish them off, right? Right now. You want it now. Amazon, some of you know this, is uh, experimenting in England currently with a drone that will deliver your packages to you within an hour. Within an hour. Like, I can't wait a day to get something. It'll drop it off in your yard and leave. Matt Sternberg's in development with it, I think, back there. We were, I was sitting in the, the uh, living room last night, and uh, I, four kids, uh, different ages. I got one kid that thinks I don't know much at all anymore. Uh, it's my teenager. All right, I've got a, another one's beginning to question me, my 10-year-old. Um, and then I've got the two girls that still think I know everything in the world, and so I love, I love those girls. And so... Uh, <laughs> And so last night I heard him sitting at the table and uh, Maddie starts talking and I, it was a little too early for Maddie to be having these questions. But she said, I just heard her say, I know how dad knows everything. And I was like, oh, this be interesting. It's because of his brilliant mind and years of study. And she says, he just looks it up on his phone, <laughs> which is about 90% correct. All right. Because we have access to everything instantly. We never have to wait. We never have to think about it. Patience doesn't have to be developed. And as a result, we end up with a very superficial existence. A pinata culture. And my goal, my desire, is not to be a pinata church or a pinata follower of Jesus. 
Instead, I want to be an iceberg. Now, icebergs are absolutely beautiful on the surface. Like, I know that this doesn't give good dimensions, but that's a huge piece of ice on top of an ocean. But the cool thing about icebergs is, as beautiful as they are on top, is directly related to how deep they are on the bottom. You know the statistics that somewhere between 85 and 90% of an iceberg is below the surface. And it's not ugly, it's not misformed, it's not misshapen. It is beautiful on top, but it's got a depth that is strong and sturdy, that has a weight and substance. I want to be the kind of church. I want to be a pastor. I want to be a part of a people that develop our lives into being icebergs in a pinata society. Where people say there's something different. Here's another thing about pinatas. You can crank out thousands of pinatas in a day in a factory. It takes time for an iceberg. But you hit a pinata at the right spot two or three times with a baseball bat, and it all falls apart. It's going to take a lot more than that to take care of an iceberg. The Titanic couldn't do it. The truth is that we want to be people that when storms and difficulties in life come, that we stand up to it and we don't falter at every turn. And so over the next few weeks, here's what we're going to talk about. How do we develop the habits that it takes to be an iceberg? How do we develop what it takes to develop our lives into this slow building process that develop us into something with substance and depth and strength? If you got your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 42. We're going to look at Psalm 42 today. We're going to look ahead into Luke at a couple of places with Jesus, some habits he formed. And then we're going to talk about our focus for the next few weeks, all right? Here's the truth. I don't have, I, don't, I really don't know how long this series is going to last. I've got a pretty good idea of basically, but I'm, we're trusting the Lord on this. We're walking through this together. We're going to develop some identity in the midst of it. And the reason I want you to turn to Psalm 42 is because I want you to see that in order to develop these spiritual habits, in order to develop this spiritual depth, there has to be a desire in our heart to begin with. And Psalm 42 is so fascinating to me because it is the story of a man who ran a race like the hare and is now in a position where he needs to return to the Lord. Psalm chapter 42, starting in verse 1, says, As a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God. The living God. As a deer longs. As an animal wants. As, as the deer goes down searching for the very sustenance of life. The very thing that's going to keep them alive. As he is searching for water. God, I want to know you. I want you. Next verse. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, all day long people say to me, where is your God? I remember this. As I pour out my heart, how I walked with many leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Why am I so depressed? Why is this turmoil within me? We're going to leave it there for a minute because I want to point out something to you. He says, listen, I long for God. I need God. I want God. There's a desire there for God. And it comes from the fact that I'm not where I used to be. I'm not where I was. He says, listen, I remember as I'm crying, it says, my tears have been flowing day after day. I'm pouring out my heart to God. And as I do that, I remember when it used to be good. Not only was I walking with the procession up to the house of God, I was leading the festive procession to the house of God. I was in front of the pack. I was shouting for joy. I was singing with all my might. And earlier when Jeff was talking about it's okay to to, to bring joy into your praise. It's okay to allow God to do something in your life. It's okay. There are some of you in this room that no matter what you try to muster up, it's just not there. It used to be there. It was a part of you. You remember when, but right now it's just not. And you don't know where it's gone. You don't want to get back there. 
what the writer of the psalm is saying, Lord, Lord, I want to be back to you. You are my desire. And the idea is, I don't want another one of those moments when I am just at the front of the pack, leading and singing and cheerleading and jumping for joy, and yet fall away quickly thereafter and allow somebody else to pass me in the race. I want the slow and steady progress of coming into you in a relationship with you. Then you ask him, why am I so depressed? Why is this turmoil within me? Next verse. He tells himself, put your hope in God. For I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. I'm deeply depressed. I'm really at a low point. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Nizar. And then he says this. Deep caused a deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. Psalm 42 is the desperate cry of someone who is saying, God, I need something more. In fact, that phrase there, deep calls to deep, there's lots of discussion about that, what that means, how that all works out. Here's what I think is happening. He's saying to the Lord here, I think this is part of it. God, I've been the front, I've been at the front leading the procession with joy, and I'd love to do that again. But I only want to do it if it's based on something that's deeper and stronger and more stable. The deepness of my soul that desires to know you is calling out to the depth of who you are. And I'm praying God to give me strength to return and to thrive. The author's not satisfied with where he is, or with what's happening in his life. And he calls out to the Lord for more. I want to read the end. If you've got your Bibles open, this is verse 11. It won't be on the screen. But I want to read the end. He goes on to do another couple of things in verses 9 and 10. But verse 11, he says, Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you such turmoil? Ask those same kind of questions again. And then he says this. Put your hope in God, for I will still praise Him, my Savior and my God. The idea he's saying there is, listen, I have nowhere else to turn. And when that depth of my soul needs filling, the only place to find it is in God. My prayer over these weeks is that we will develop a deeper relationship with the Lord That we would reimagine what our commitment to Him is and what He wants us to become. And that in the midst of that, we would build the habits that help us develop into those people. Your habits determine who you are. The Roman poet Ovid, I know you all been reading a lot of Ovid lately. The Roman poet Ovid who lived around the time of Jesus... Within 10, 15, 20 years of Jesus, either way, the Roman poet Ovid said, nothing is stronger than habit. The regular occurring things that we do. And here's the cool thing about this. From the scriptures we see that even Jesus had habits. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to put a couple of verses on screen. I want to talk to him for a minute. And then we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about and where we're going and why we're going there. And then we're going to be done. But if you look in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, this is an interesting thing. It's after um, Jesus has been tempted. It's after the, his ministry is really beginning here. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So he goes back to his hometown. He's done kind of getting prepared. It's ready to launch into his ministry. He comes back to his hometown. And it says, as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So this was a normal custom for him. He got up on the Sabbath day and he went and he read at the synagogue. He went and he listened at the synagogue. He went to church every week. That's what he did. And then we get to the end of his life, Luke chapter 22, verse 39. And so Luke 4 is at the beginning of his ministry. Luke 22 is at the end. And he says, he went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him as usual. That's what he did. He went to the Mount of Olives. Well, why did he go to the Mount of Olives? Would Jesus like olives? No, he went there to pray. That's what he did. That was his custom. That was his regular occurrence. Now here's the cool thing about that, all right? So as usual, you'll see was in both sentences, back in Luke chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 22, they both of the words, the original Greek words, come from a word that me, that is called ethos. So it's like E-T-H-O-S, all right? Um, it, it means, and this is really cool, if you look at the most basic definition of ethos in a Greek dictionary, the first meaning is habit. 
And so in Luke chapter 4, it says, So Jesus got up on the Sabbath, as was his habit, he went to church. Luke 22, 39 says that Jesus got up and he went out. This is after the Lord's Supper. He went to the Mount of Olives, as was his habit. That's what he always did. And let me just say this. If Jesus had in place patterns and habits that would shape him in his life following his Father, don't you think it might be a good idea for us? If he needed that, so do we. Now, this isn't even here. This is bonus. I didn't get this in the first service. But think about it. Just before Luke 4, he's tempted in the desert. How does he respond every time to that temptation? He quotes Scripture. Well, how did he know the Scripture? Because he got up every day and he read the Scripture and he memorized Scripture. We're going to talk about it in this service. I mean, not in this service, but in this series about Scripture. But he had a habit of Scripture. He had a habit of prayer. He had a habit of going to church. You see, here's the problem with our generation. We want the destiny without the disciplines. We want the gain without the pain. I was driving yesterday, doing some errands yesterday afternoon. I was just me in the car. I was listening to the uh, one of the NFL playoff games. And in the midst of the NFL playoff game, they came on the radio with an ad for a new gym in East Nashville. Which I know automatically means I'm not cool enough to go. But I was listening to the ad, alright? And so this new gym in East Nashville was opening up. And this is what they said on it. And it, I think it was one of the former Titans players that was doing the commercial. I'm sure they got paid him a little bit of money to do that. But he said, this is what he said, he said, Ten minutes... In one of our machines is better than four days at a regular gym. Ten minutes in one of our machines. Some kind of new machine that reads your body and works it out for you. Is better than four days in a regular gym. And my first thought is, where do I sign up, right? Ten minutes a week, one machine, fit, everything's great, that's what I want to do. And then I thought about something my dad told me. That if it seems too good to be true, probably is, right? And they give you the first two free. They're very generous people. All right? And I thought about this thing we're talking about right now. Like, there are, you know there are people listening to that radio. Like, I'm calling that number right now. Ten minutes instead of uh, four hours? I'm doing it. I can get my Uber Eats Krispy Kreme and then go to the gym for ten minutes. So over the next few weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the habits that we need to develop a life that follows God. And this is my intention, all right? We're going to talk about things like scripture and fasting and prayer and community and celebration and solitude and simplicity and service and the need for steadfastness to make it through. But my goal is not to just lay stuff on top of you as Jesus talked about the Pharisees that say, you put weights on them that they cannot bear. My goal is not, that's why, that's why we kind of wanted a kind of a light picture here for, you know, embracing the turtles kind of cute picture because we don't want you to say, if I put up a, uh, if I put up a, a sermon series title that says, Embracing the spiritual disciplines Like nobody would have come excited about today I had youth but going, what is a turtle? What do we do with a turtle? Like we don't have an actual turtle here But we're going to talk about it if, The idea is these are, these are things that ought to bring us joy In our lives But I want us to make sure of three things before we go We're going to do these very quickly Our focus during the whole thing and the first focus that we have talking about these habits is we only do these habits to know Jesus better. If there's any other reason, then it's not worth it. It's not to get more knowledge about the Bible. It's not to get more information from the Bible. It's not to be able to check stuff off to let people know we've done really cool spiritual stuff. It is to know Jesus better. I thought about this because uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I've shared this with some of you. Some of you know this. I've, I actually wrote an article that's been read by over like uh, almost 100,000 people um, about why Baptists might celebrate Lent. And so for the last four or five years, I've been celebrating Lent on my own personal stuff. We haven't done it as a church. Um, but just personally, I, I fast from something in the 40 days leading up to Easter. I read devotionals. I prepare myself for Easter just to prepare for that moment, okay, that celebration. And two years ago... Um, I had done stuff like caffeine. I did red meat one year. Um, I did, and those, those are difficult things for me. Caffeine means no diet, Dr. Pepper. Uh, red meat, I eat red meat all the time. And so, like fish, I eat fish for uh, like a month and a half. And so, did all that. 
two years ago, I, for some reason, the Lord just laid on my heart to skip a meal every day. So I fasted. I would eat breakfast and I would eat dinner with my diabetes. There are certain things I have to, to kind of do. And so I would skip lunch. Every day I'd skip lunch. I'd have water for lunch. That was it. And here's the thing that happened. It was a, man, it was an unbelievable experience. I did give up to us through the Lord. My body was not prepared for that. And so, like, there were hunger pains every day around lunch. I would use those to pray like you're supposed to do that first year. It was really good. And here, also, a side effect of that is I lost, like, 15 to 20 pounds. And some of you noticed because, you know, you made those backhanded compliments that I hear. Like, man, you, like, you're starting to look pretty, you know, like you've lost some, like your clothes fit you now. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. You know, like, wow, when, when did, didn't realize you were on a diet. Well, I'm, you know, and spiritually can't go, I'm fasting for the Lord. And so this is a blessing from him that I've lost all this weight. Like, you're not going to say that, all right? And so I was working out at the time as well. It was really, it was a, it was a high point of committed life for me. And I lost like 15 to 20 pounds. Well, then the next year starts to roll around. And I start praying about, God, what do you want me to give up? And you know, the first thought I thought was, man, I'm going to fast from lunch again. Because I put on like 30 pounds. And I'm going to lose that back. You're like, I'm going to, I'm going to take that out. Like, this is the opportunity. And I just felt this check in my spirit that said, if you're doing it to lose weight, don't do it. Like, that was a side benefit. But if you're doing it for any other reason than to know me better, then don't do it. If you're doing it because you wrote a blog about it and now you feel like you have to, don't do it. Our goal in spiritual habits, whatever, we are going to talk about fasting, by the way. I know that's crazy because we don't ever talk about it, but we are. Whatever your goal is, it's to know Jesus better. Secondly, we want to place ourselves on the path of God's grace. See, here's the deal. This is not going to earn you favor with God. God's not going to give you uh, stars in heaven. You're not getting graded on a report card up there about how good you are at the spiritual disciplines. There's no gain in appreciation and being approved by God because of it. But here's what happens. When you begin to read your Bible, when you begin to pray, when you go to community, when you share your life with other people, you place yourselves in the path that God has ordained for His grace to flow and for change to happen and for blessings to come. Place yourself in the path of God's grace. I couldn't help but think of the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the story in Luke 19, it tells us that he's there and Jesus is coming through town. And it says he's too short to see him. And so he goes and he climbs a tree because he knows Jesus is passing through. Here's the thing. I don't know when, where, how Jesus is going to walk through my life. But I can guarantee you there's a better chance he does if I'm studying his word, praying to him, seeking him in community, being a part of a church. Because those are the places that he has preordained to speak and work to people. And so I want to be in that channel, in that stream. And the last thing, we want to know Jesus better. We want to place ourselves on the path of God's grace. And we want to grow in godliness. I just want to be more like him. And scripture says that we are to train ourselves for godliness. Not try, but train. And so for the next few weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about one, two a week. I'm not I'm going to give you homework each week. We're going to talk about it. My goal, again, is not to give you burdens. So by the end of it, you think, I've got 20 new things I've got to do. I want you to be able to see some things that God is calling you to pursue in your life. Let's pray together.